A very religious man was once caught in rising floodwaters, and so he climbed onto the roof of his house, and he trusted God to rescue him. A neighbor came by in a canoe and said, the waters will soon be over your house. Hop in, and we'll paddle to safety. And the man said, no thanks. He said, I prayed to God, and I'm sure that God's going to save me. A little while later, the police came by in a boat, and they said, hey, the waters will soon be over your house. Hop in, and we'll take you to safety. He said, no thanks. I've prayed to God, and I'm sure that he will save me. A little time later, a rescue service's helicopter hovered overhead and let down a rope and said, the waters will soon be over your house. Climb the ladder, and we'll fly you to safety. No thanks, said the man. I've prayed to God, and I'm sure he'll save me. And all the while, the floodwaters continued to rise, and so soon, they reached over the roof, and the man drowned. And so he was shocked when he opened up his eyes, and he was in heaven, and there he demanded an audience with God. And so ushered into God's throne room, he said, Lord, why am I in heaven? I pray that you would save me. I trusted you to save me from that flood. And God said, yes, you did. And so I sent you a canoe, and then a boat, and then a helicopter, but you would never get in, so the way I figured, if you're that dumb, you deserve to drown. Well, that's the only joke I have about prayer, so I want to tell it today, because today's the last Sunday we're going to spend in the Lord's Prayer this morning. So let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 6 for a message titled, Building a Pattern of Prayer. Uh, Last week I misspoke and said we'd be spending three weeks covering the Lord's Prayer, and I meant to say we'd be covering uh, three weeks uh, this section that's verses 5 down through verse 19, which is all about drawing close to God. In verses 5 through 15, he talks about drawing close to God through prayer, and then in verses 16 uh, through 18, he talks about drawing close to God through fasting. And so this morning, we're going to look at verses 5 through 13, where Jesus talks to us and teaches his disciples about building a pattern of prayer. And I want you to understand what a fascinating passage of Scripture this is this morning. Think of all the things that if you could set across from Jesus himself and say, hey, uh, if I could just have one request, I would love for you to teach me this. What would it be? Uh, Lots of you you say, hey, I know exactly what I'd ask him because I've been asking for a long time. Some of you'd have to think about that for a while. So here's the disciples. They get an audience with Jesus and they say, "Uh, Lord, teach us not not to raise the dead, not to part the seas, not to do all these miracles. Lord, teach us to pray. And so this is an incredibly foundational passage on the power and the pattern of prayer. Matthew chapter 6. Let's pick up the text this morning in verse 5. And when you pray, you should not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, Do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have the need of before you ask Him. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. These nine verses are incredibly foundational, important passage as it relates to building a pattern of prayer. And basically, these nine verses uh, can break into two uh, sections this morning, and so that's how we'll handle them. And the first section is some principles to avoid. 
And so when Jesus is teaching his followers, he says, gather around, I'm going I'm to teach you something about prayer. He says, all right, before we get started on, on a pattern and building a, a progressive nature, and this is what it should look like, these are the elements, here are some things you should not do that commonly people are doing. And so he starts off by identifying the things you should not do in building a pattern of prayer. All right, and then the second thing we'll look at are the progressive steps on what you should do. So the first principle to avoid is simply this. Do not pray to impress other people. Do not pray to impress other people. Uh, some people focus on the posture of prayer in these first few verses. Some people uh, spend a lot of time talking about uh, the geographical location of prayer in these first few verses. But the primary point of what Jesus is addressing here is the motive of the heart. And the reason I know that is because that's what the context uh, dictates. Go back into chapter 6 and let's look at verses 1 through 4 that we did not read. And look what he says here. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have the reward, but when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Now, if you say that sounds like some very similar language to verses 5 down through verse 8, it's because he's teaching the same principle. He said there are folks when they're giving money to the poor, it's not, not out of a true heart motive. It's not necessarily they want to help that person. They want to let other people see what the good deeds they've done. Have you ever met anyone like that? Anytime they do something good, they, they just can't help but let everyone else know who's in earshot. And he's saying, hey, listen, if that's your motive, then you've got your reward. You wanted recognition, you've got it. And he says, but don't do that uh, when it comes to prayer. Now, Jesus is uh, not against uh, public prayers. There are lots of places in the Bible where public prayer took place, but he was warning against the practice of some of the Jewish leaders. Uh, they enjoyed quoting great and elaborate uh, prayers in public at the synagogues on the street corner, and they would rattle off these long, memorized prayers and chants and, and repetitions, all the while people gathering around saying, wow. Look how holy this person is. Look how deeply religious they are. And Jesus said, hey, the problem is this. It may be uh, uh, impressive, but it's not connected to the heart of God. And their motive is to be seen by men. And so therefore, they have their reward. Recognition. And so Jesus says, do not do that. Do not pray uh, to impress other people. And uh, public prayer for the Pharisees was yet another opportunity to put their piety on display in front of others. Even though their heart was far from God for them, it was an exercise in religion when prayer is an exchange and in an intimate relationship between God and man through uh, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus said to the people who prayed long and loud in public, they have their reward. Now, he says, if you want the reward of intimacy with the Father, uh, then you need to do the exact opposite. Go back into chapter 6. And then in verse 6, uh, he says this, But you, uh, when you pray, go into your room, and when you've shut your door, uh, pray to your Father who's in the secret place. 
And your father who sees in secret will reward you uh, openly. Now, uh, here's the reality. Now, I've heard some people get uh, very literal here. Uh, Tasha's mom told me that her grandfather, who was a pastor for a long period of time, he would take this verse very literally. He would go into a closet literally and close the door and offer up prayers. And so some people you know, focus on the geography here and what's going on. And so the main point of this passage uh, is simply this, and I want to look at. Uh, he wants uh, this, uh, to be this intimate exchange between you and God. Now... Here's the question. Uh, why did all this go in there and shut the door? Uh, can, can't you just, uh, can, can I pray anywhere? Can, can I just, uh, why do I have to draw, you know, why is this going away and, and getting along with, can, can I just have this conversation with God all the time? Some of you say, that's my prayer life. Anytime God prompts my heart, I'm offering up prayers. Listen, it's not an either or, it's a both and. God certainly prompts our heart in a spontaneous prayer, but also the Bible teaches and Christ himself models there should be seasons where I'm drawing away and building intimacy with God. Now, let me give you a little illustration here, and I think that you'll help see the power of carving out uh, time to be alone with God, and I think this will help you. Have you ever, don't raise your hand by the way, okay? It gets you in trouble. Have you ever uh, went through a period with your spouse where you were not fighting uh, but you were distant. You weren't giving each other the silent treatment, but, but you just felt distant in your relationship. There was no, there, you look back, there's no fighting going on. You're not purposely giving the silent, but there's just a distance uh, in your relationship. Now, if you're here and you say, I've never had that, let me just share with you this morning a word of encouragement. No one likes you or your perfect marriage, all right? And what happens is that because sometimes, especially if you have kids in your house, the pace of life becomes so frantic uh, that sometimes uh, marriage very quickly becomes a series of exchanges as you pass each other in the hallway with necessary information about where you have to be and what's on the schedule next and all those kinds of things. And so that's the difference between disconnected, need-based, functional communication with God and intentional times carved out for the soul purpose of building intimacy in your relationship with him and if I just walked I said hey tell tell me the health of your marriage you said well we don't spend a lot of time together I can't tell you the last time we went on a date I can't tell the last time we went away together I can't tell you the last time we you know spent some time and you know all those things and put the kids in grandma's house and all those kinds of things but boy uh, often when we pass in the hallway we exchange necessary information you know what I'd lean across and say hey something's wrong and yes, that's a part of life and that's a part of that, but, but if, that, if that communication models your communication with God and it's only functional, short exchanges, God, here's what I got going on, here's my needs, bless me, help me, heal me, all those bless me, right, all those things, but there's never any drawing away to build intimacy, then guess what? Just like there would be a problem in your marriage, that signifies a problem in your relationship with God. And so let me make this as practical as possible have a quiet place, and go there every day. Draw away. Listen, if Jesus himself often drew away from the crowds uh, and he was God in the flesh, then you and I have to model that same practice. And yes, there's spontaneous prayer, but there's also times of drawing away. So have a time, have a place, and go there every single day. Our church planner in Boston that we support, Pastor Ricky Grant, he told me, he said, when I uh, need to be alone with God, he said, there's a rock I go out to, and I just sit on that rock, and I talk to God. Andy Stanley said, growing up in our house, he said, if my father was seated in a particular chair in our house, we knew not to approach him because he was in a conversation with God. 
I read a story this week about a woman who was deeply devoted to prayer, uh, but she had a bunch of little kids running around, and she couldn't get away from them. Can anyone say amen to that? And so what she did to signify that she was spending time with God, she would take her outer apron, she'd just put it over her head and start talking to God because she couldn't get away from them. Listen, the point is this. It doesn't matter where you go, where you sit, what you do. The point is this, that there are seasons of drawing away on a daily basis where I'm building intimacy with God. And yes, there's spontaneous prayer, but there's also time carved out in a relationship. And so if the only time we're praying in a manner that seems like it's effective is when our prayers are public, then Jesus said, hey, you missed the point here. You're, you're, like, the, you're like the Pharisees. They, never were, they weren't interested in intimacy with God, but they were deeply interested in impressing other people with their public prayer life. And so don't pray to impress other people. Uh, build in seasons of intimacy in your prayer life so that when you do pray publicly, it's the overflow of what God is doing on a daily basis in your relationship with him. Find a time, find a place, and guard that appointment like you would a reservation to your favorite restaurant like White Castle or somewhere nice like that, all right? Second thing he says in this passage, uh, do, do not do is this. Uh, number two, do not let your heart get disconnected from your words. Can, can we just be honest that sometimes when you're praying, particularly at night, if it's you're praying before you go to sleep, there are some times that mid-prayer you just, you're, you're gone, Right? I mean, I never do that. I'm a pastor, but you guys do, right? Or sometimes you're praying and all of a sudden you can't, you're like, I don't even know what I'm saying. And so there's a dangerous, there's a practice uh, that, that uh, is an indicator that there's some hypocrisy between my private prayer life and my public prayer life is that I just get to this place where I'm just repeating things. My heart is not into it. I don't even know what I'm saying. I just start off my prayer the same way. Every time I say the same things, every time I pray the same thing, every time kind of a thing. And so one of the ways that we know that our heart is disconnected is repetition. Uh, Look at verse seven. Uh, What does he say in chapter six, verse seven? And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. That's a great word, is it not? Is it not fun to call someone a heathen? For they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Now, the word heathen here uh, is actually an original. It's translated Gentile. But it's not Gentile as a non-Jew, because that's all of us. It's a spiritual Gentile, a person who did not know God. And so apparently what was happened is they believed that the false gods they worshipped that they could wake up their gods. There's all kinds of ways uh, we learn from church history uh, that people thought they could wake up their gods. Just a little side trivia here. Uh, when someone says this, you know, I hope this happens or I hope this doesn't happen, they do this, they say, what do they say? Knock on wood. You know what knock on wood was? It was the way that they would uh, awaken false idols to answer their, their uh, situation. And so the next time you say, hey, knock on wood, you know what I'm gonna say? You're a heathen, right? <laughs> but they thought that somehow uh, if they could just chant long enough and loud enough and repeat enough words over and over that eventually that, that uh, repetition, those chants would impress their God and he would incline his ear towards their requests. And so Jesus uh, comes along and says, hey, let me tell you something. Uh, uh, God's not impressed by that. As a matter of fact, uh, in verse 8, let me tell you why he's not impressed by saying the same thing over and over and over and over. Because before it even comes out of your mouth, he knows what you're going to say. He got the message before you even sent it. Is what he's describing here. Now, 
Even though Jesus is very clear about not praying that way, the intimacy of our prayer life uh, starts to drift. That, that's the pattern you can fall into. Do you know how I know when I'm getting in a rut in my prayer life? It's when I find myself starting off the same way every single time. I find myself praying in the same place every single time. I find myself saying the same things over and over that I prayed the day before and the day before that and all of those kinds of things. Now, if you grew up in church, you've experienced this. Uh, There was always that one guy who was asked to pray for the offering, and before the words ever came out of his mouth, you knew exactly what he was going to say. Am I right? Now, I did not grow up going to church. When I was a teenager, uh, I started going with a friend of mine. And so uh, I was a novice churchgoer, but I was a fast learner. And what I learned very quickly, that you did two things to pass the time if church got boring. Number one, you drew on the offering envelopes. Raise your hand if you've ever been an offering envelope artist. Has anyone ever done that? Yeah, occasionally when someone wants to encourage me after church, they'll say, hey, That must have been a really fascinating sermon you preached yesterday. I said, why? They said, because here's what people were writing while you're preaching. Someone did some offering envelope art, okay? But the second thing you did if church got slow is you tried to say word for word what you knew brother so-and-so was going to pray because he said the same thing every single time. And you try and lean over your friend and say it before he could, right? Uh, I remember specifically there was a guy uh, who by no means had a mastery of the king's English Uh, But when he was called upon to pray, a a miracle took place. He was transported instantly back into the 1600s as he prayed every single time, Father, we thank thee for thy love and for thy care and thy concern. I thought, what? I've heard you talk. You can't make complete senses. What are you doing? Right? Uh, There was another guy. uh, Every single time when he would pray for the offering, I knew exactly how he was going to close out the prayer. He would say this every uh, single time, Lord, bless those who give and those who can't. The best public prayer story at that church was the time they called on a guy. He was incredibly shy. And uh, so, uh, they, you know, at the end of the service, it was always, listen, if you don't want to pray in service at those churches, you know what you did when it came time for the closing prayer? You just looked down, Right? No one's making eye contact because you may get called on to pray. But this pastor, he didn't care. This guy was looking down. He was very shy. And so the pastor said, hey, I'm going to ask brother so-and-so to pray. To which as soon as the words got out of his mouth, this guy quickly and humbly said, no, thank you. (laughs) Awkward, right? Now, if you don't have a place to draw away, that's step one. And step two is take inventory and be aware that your words are no longer connected to a heart that's seeking after God because you just find yourself saying the same thing over in the same way, the same opening, the same closing, the same kind of request, just going through all the time. That is an indicator that my heart is no longer connected to my words. And so Jesus said, hey, listen, don't pray to impress other people. Don't let there be hypocrisy between your public prayer life and your or private prayer life and your public one. And number two, don't, don't just say the same things over and over and over. Why? Because your father knows what you need before you even ask. So those are two things you should not do in building a pattern of prayer. So in verses 9 through 13, Jesus begins to lay down a pattern of prayer. And I want you to listen. There's three steps, and here's what I want you to understand this morning. These are three steps, but they're three progressive steps. 
All right? So this is not some random thrown together order, some random verses around that say, hey, when you pray, kind of cover these bases. You don't have to get legalistic about it. You know, we got this chart. But he says, here's a progressive pattern of effective prayer. All right? So what's the progressive pattern here in verses 9 through 13? Number one, uh, start with worship. Start with a recognition of who God is. Now, what this means is very simple, but it's very important to remember. Uh, so if you're listening, say amen. What Jesus is saying here is simply this. When you pray, don't start with you, start with God. That, that's what he's saying here. When you pray, don't start with you, start with God. Look at verse 9. And so in verse 9, he says, in this manner, in this pattern, he's not saying, hey, repeat these words exactly. He's just saying, hey, here's a pattern. In this manner, therefore pray, what's he say first off? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, the word hallow here uh, means to sanctify. Now, we know that God sanctifies us. We know that God transforms us. And so what does it mean that, that we're wanting God's name to be sanctified? Are we making God holy? Is he not holy? Does the Bible contradict itself? And so what does it mean to say, hey, God, I'm praying that your name would be sanctified. What that means is simply this. I'm praying uh, that you would be treated as holy. That's the prayer there. It's starting off with a recognition of who God is. So what does it mean to treat God as holy? Like what what does that look like practically? And so if you take that word sanctify and you look at other places it's at in the Bible, both the Old and New Testament, you basically come up with a few different examples of what it looks like. John Piper in his sermon titled Hallowed Be Thy Name uh, records the following insight. He said there are several places in the Bible uh, this same way uh, word is used, uh, the word hallowed here. And he said each time you see it, it means something different. So the first thing we see is to treat God as holy means to believe him uh, to the point of trusting. To believe him to the point of trusting. Uh, during the wilderness wandering of the people of Israel, there was a time when they had no water And so God uh, spoke and the people grumbled against Moses. And so God gave Moses some very specific instructions. He said, Moses, hey, in front of all the people to show that I'm God, speak to the rock and it'll produce water for the people. But Moses got got impatient, he got angry. And so instead of doing what God said and speaking to the rock, uh, Moses got angry and he struck the rock. And so the rock produced water and the water came But so did the stinging words of God to Moses. Listen to what he said. Because you do not believe in me to sanctify me. There's that word hallow me. In the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I've given them. He said, hey, Moses, they're going to go in the promised land and you're going to die on the other side. Because you didn't treat me as holy. You didn't believe me to the point of trusting. A second time we see that word hallowed. uh, The idea of sanctifying or treating God as holy is Isaiah chapter 8. And it references the fear of displeasing God uh, is greater than the fear of men. The fear of displeasing God is greater than the fear of men. Listen to Isaiah chapter 8. Uh, God speaks to Isaiah and warns him not to be like the, uh, uh, like the people of Israel. And here's what he says. He says, do not call conspiracy all that this people call conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. There's that same word. That's the word uh, hallowed. Let him be your fear. Let him uh, be your dread. And so what that means is this, that when God commands you, 
you're more afraid of disobeying God than you are afraid of what people are going to think when you obey him. And so hallowing God's name or treating us holy as the fear of displeasing God is greater than the fear of men. And the third thing we see in in, uh, looking at the scripture is that one of the ways we treat God holy is by keeping his uh, commandments. Uh, The word is used again there in Leviticus 22. It says, so you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord and you shall not profane my holy name, but I will be hallowed. There's that word again. I will be hallowed among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And so he says one of the ways we treat God as holy is by obeying him. And so why is obedience such a big deal? Because it's showing God that he's holy. It's one of the ways we treat him that way. And so the first thing he says is he said, listen, when you're praying, start with worship. And the second thing I want you to see in this pattern is this, uh, is you acknowledge your submission. You acknowledge your submission. So first off, we recognize who God is, verse 9. And then secondly in this pattern, uh, we recognize who we are in relation to God. And when I do that, the only thing I can conclude with integrity is I have to acknowledge my submission before a holy and sovereign God. Now, i got to be honest this morning. When I was putting together this message, uh, I think this is often a step that I skip in my prayer life. I'm just being honest this morning. I believe it completely. Uh, to the core of my conviction. But my pattern is probably more like, God, you're great, and so are my needs, right? And sometimes if you're not careful, without acknowledging this principle in verse 10, you're finding yourself trying to bend the will of God into your situation. And so often I think I skip over this step in the pattern of prayer in my life. God, you're great, so are my needs, and if you would, and if you do this, I would so appreciate it. This is clearly a step in the progressive pattern Jesus is saying is this. Look at verse 10, verse 9, recognizing who God is. Start with worship, hallowed be your name. Verse 10, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is uh, in heaven. Now, when we think of the kingdom of God, listen, uh, our, our minds have been tainted about the kingdom. When I think of a kingdom, sometimes we think of castles and, and uh, people on horses and jousting and all those kinds of things in medieval terms. But when the Bible talks about the kingdom of God, it's referencing two things. One, there is the future aspect of the kingdom where Christ will rule and reign. So that's the future aspect. But then the present aspect of God's kingdom is when Christ rules and reigns in the hearts of men. And that's what he's saying there. God, above all else, hallowed be your name. And as a result of that, Lord, who you are as holy, I'm totally open to whatever you want to do in my life. I'm totally open to whatever you want to do in this situation, God. Because your will be done. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And so we make this as simple as I can. Before we offer up our requests and our list of needs, we offer up this confession to God and saying, Lord, I would love for you to change these situations. I would love for you to change this situation, but God, more than that, more than anything, I want you to change me until you change the situation. Because God, ultimately, it's not about what I want, it's about whatever you want, and me being submissive to that process. And Lord, I trust you in doing that. Now, if you're listening, say amen.
Let me tell you why this is important. There are lots of reasons why this is important. Let me tell you one reason this is so important from a practical aspect in building your pattern of prayer. This acknowledgement, this acknowledgement of God, I'm submissive. God, whatever you want to do, I'm okay. I trust you. The reason that's so important in building a pattern of prayer is because that simple step, often repeated, guards our heart against bitterness and disappointment with God. You say, well, how does that happen? Now, some of you may be a little holier than I am, and you're here and you've never been angry at God. But I'm going to guess I'm not the only person in the room who's ever been angry at God or disappointed at God because God either A, didn't answer my prayers, or B, didn't answer them the way that I wanted him and told him I needed him to answer, or C, he answered them not in the time frame. And all of those is coming before God and saying, God, uh, listen, I, I need this to happen. This is, this is so important. You don't understand why this timing and answering this way and, and how this would turn out. And so God, I want this to happen. And then if God in his sovereignty and his goodness and his omniscience decides to not grant that request, then guess what happens with you and I in our prayer life? We get bitter. We get bitter. I prayed and it didn't change. I prayed and God did something. I wouldn't have done that. I prayed and God delayed, 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 and maybe too late and all those kinds of things. But if I just come before the Lord and say, God, you are holy, number one, number two in verse 10, and I'm submissive. And whatever you want to do, God, it's good. And so it guards our heart against bitterness. And then the third step in the pattern is simply this. Make your needs known. Make your needs known. And so do you see the progression here in this pattern? Hey, don't, don't pray to impress other people, five and six. Don't, don't let your heart get disconnected from your words, seven and eight. Don't do those things. But when you are, here's what you should do. You should, number one, start with God, verse nine, and then uh, recognize you're submissive because of who God is, verse 10, and then you can make your request known. Now, if you're like me, sometimes you're just barging into the throne room of God and just, I mean, you can't stop. Like, God, do this and do this and do this and do this. No recognition of who he is. No no open, Lord, whatever you want to do, I'm totally submissive. I trust you. I trust your character. I'm just blowing in there. Just here, here are my needs. Here's my list. But there's a pattern that he lays out for us. And so then we start with God. We submit ourselves to God and his will. And then third, we offer a request to God. Now, uh, this passage here, you can find three things you can offer uh, requests in three categories. And we're going to look at them here this morning. So uh, first off is the need for provision. Uh, verse 11, look what he says. Uh, Give us this day our daily bread. And so in Jesus' day, workers were uh, paid at the end of each day. They were used to living one day at a time, according to stats in America. So, so are many of us. And so they would just uh, honestly pray. Uh, they would just say, we, we trust God for your provision. And our ultimate security is not found in our employment or the monetary gain it provides. Our ultimate security is found in a God who provides for our daily needs. And so the first thing we pray for is just the need for provision. God, you know my needs. God, you love me. God, you're sovereign. And so I'm just going to ask you to meet my needs today. Not next week, not the week after, not Lord, Lord, today. Meet my needs. And when I build that into my prayer life, guess what? I have a security and a foundation. And so the need for provision... Uh, the second thing is this, uh, is the need for pardon or forgiveness. Uh, look at verse 12, and, we, and forgive us our debts, that's our sin debt against God. 
as we forgive our debtors. Now, uh, the reality is this. Uh, some of you may be thinking, hey, listen, but when I got saved, didn't God already forgive me for sins past, present, and future? And the answer to that is absolutely. And so my position in Christ is secure. My relationship cannot be severed. But the fellowship I experience with him can have seasons of distance and broken communication. Relationship is permanent and secure. Fellowship can be broken. And so we go to God and ask for that forgiveness to restore that fellowship between us and God. Now, what's the big deal? Look what he says in verse 12. Look at it again. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Let me tell you something. As long as we harbor an unforgiving spirit toward those who sin against us, we cannot walk in fellowship with God with integrity. Here's why. Genuine repentance means that I understand the enormity of my sin against God, and so therefore it makes everyone else's sin against me minuscule in comparison to how I've sinned against God. That's why the Bible says this in Ephesians that forgive others just as you've been forgiven. You don't know what they've done. You don't know how long they've done it. You know what they say, all those kinds of things. Listen, that's a person who doesn't understand how they've sinned against God and how minuscule those sins are in comparison. And so there's a need for provision, the need for pardon. And lastly, uh, there's the need for protection. And so verse 12 deals with our past sins. Uh, verse 13 deals with future sins. But when you read verse 13... There is a seeming contradiction uh, in verse 13. Look at it. And do not lead us into temptation, uh, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, here's a question. Can God tempt us to sin? Can God, because why, why in the world would he pray that? Why would he pray something that seems to contradict the very nature of God? And then listen to James chapter 1. James chapter 1 verse 13 says this. Let no man say when he's tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempted he any man. It appears there's a contradiction in the Bible. So here's, you know, Jesus said, hey, listen, pray that God, pray that you would be tempted. But then James chapter 1 verse 13 says, God, God's never tempted anyone. And so this is a place where the original language actually is helpful in getting to the true meaning of the word. And the word there in verse uh, 13, uh, temptation, is the Greek word paramos. And it's used over and over in Scripture. Sometimes it means test. Sometimes it means prove. Sometimes it means temptation. Sometimes it means trials. And uh, we think of temptation as drawing away. Uh, but I think the word, and most scholars agreed when I studied this, that the word is better translated here, trial. And so look back at verse 13 and think of it that way. And do not lead us into trials. Now, here's the other question. I thought God used trials to grow me. What about that part in the Bible where it says, consider it all joy when you get involved in various trials? So what does this mean here? Well, what it means is simply is this. Lord, don't ever lead us into a trial which will present to us such a temptation that we'll not be able to resist it. In other words, I want you to listen to this this morning. God, protect me from getting into a situation that I might bring reproach on your name. That's an incredible thing to pray for. 
God, protect me from getting into a trial that is so severe that I'm tempted to do something to lessen the suffering in that trial, and I'm tempted to do something that will bring reproach on your name. That's what that means. That is an incredible thing to pray for in your pattern of prayer. Well, this is, this is a foundational prayer, I think, because it's so familiar. We've discounted it at times. We've treated it common, and it's incredibly powerful. But here's what I want to leave you with this morning. The simple fact is this, that everything, everything God offers to us in prayer, everything is only accessible through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if you don't know him today, listen, today's as good a day as any to receive him as your Savior. Would you bow your heads this morning? With your head bowed this morning, I want to ask you very simply, do you know Christ as your Savior? Have you ever been saved? And if the answer is no, then what you have to wrestle with this morning is you don't have access to the Father. You can't go to a holy God through prayer without going through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. And so if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ is your Savior, right in your seat this morning, right in the quietness of your own heart, you can pray and receive Christ as your Savior. Would you pray and acknowledge that you've sinned before a holy God? Would you confess that you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross as payment for your sins and was buried and rose the third day? And would you receive Christ by faith this morning as your personal Lord and Savior? You have no access to God apart from Christ. Many of you in the room have already prayed to receive Christ. I know your stories. I've heard your testimony. I've seen you get baptized. But my guess is you're like me. Often you find yourself struggling in your prayer life and just drifting into patterns, saying the same thing over and over. Your heart's disconnected from the words. Oftentimes you're trying to convince God to do something that you think he needs to do. Oftentimes you're not starting off recognizing who God is. You just rush in there and say, God, bless me and do this and God, fix this. And you want to grow and establish a pattern of prayer that honors God. You want vibrancy in your prayer life, not just exchange of information. You want intimacy with the Father. If you say, Pastor, that's me this morning. I, I, I really want to grow in this area. I really want to grow in this area. Would you just pray for me that, that God would help me grow in this area? If that's you, would you just raise your hand? Amen. Amen. Anybody else? My hand's raised. Let me just pray for you this morning. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for speaking into an area of our lives that that we struggle with so often. And so, Lord, I pray that for every person whose hand was raised, God, you would revitalize their prayer life. God, you would help them understand when they get into ruts and they're disconnected. God, you would help them see the value of building time with God every day, building intimacy with God every single day, that God, through that time of spending with you, you would renew their life. Because the Bible says, in the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. In the presence of God, that's where joy is found. So God, change our hearts this morning. Help us to crave that time with you as a delight and as a time of worship, not as a duty or as a burden. 
And God, whatever request you answer, whatever request you choose not to answer, we submit ourselves because we know that you're sovereign and we know that you love us and we know that you're for us. And so God, we're grateful for your truth this morning, how it transforms us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.